Thank you for downloading this podcast of the Sunday Sermon. The Sunday Sermon podcast is a ministry of the Westerville Free Will Baptist Church located in Westerville, Ohio. And my name is Paul Ederling, and I am the pastor of the Westerville Church. And I would like to invite you to find out more about our church by visiting www.westervillechurch.org. And then also, if you would just take a moment uh, wherever you download your podcast to rate and and comment on our podcast that will help us to be more easily discovered um, in the podcast world. And now let's join the message. I don't know what your family is like, but um, from time to time we get on this streak in our house where we just begin to play games, card games, board games, all kinds of games. Um, And it kind of goes in streaks. We'll play for a little bit, and then we'll put it away for about a year, and then we'll pick it up at New Year's and start playing again for a month, and then put it away for a year. But one of my favorite games, and and people in my family don't like it because it takes so long, but one of my favorite games is Monopoly. Who's with me? All right. And one 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 of my most favorite things about Monopoly is doing all I can to get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Because if I've got that get-out-of-jail-free card, there's nothing that bothers me in that game. I can get whatever role I get, I can go to whatever extent, and if I end up in jail, boom, I'm out of jail. And as fun as that is in the game of Monopoly... I am afraid that all too often we have treated the gospel like the get out of hell card. We like the gospel because we can accept the gospel, we can accept Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives, and then nothing changes. Except we believe that we have escaped hell. The problem with that is it's not biblical. The biblical idea of the gospel is much broader and much bigger than just escaping hell. A few weeks ago we started this series on issues of the heart. And we spent two weeks talking about the sufficiency of Scripture and that the Scripture is our rule of faith and practice and that it has in it everything we need for life and godliness and we've we've talked about that for a couple of weeks and now I want us to think about as it relates to the issues of our heart the sufficiency of the gospel because the gospel is not just the get out of hell for free card it's much more than that so let's think about that. Just hold your fingers there in 1 Corinthians 6. We'll get there eventually. But I want us to start with this question. Why do we need the gospel? Now the word gospel in and of itself means good news. And if the word gospel means good news, then that must mean that there are some other type of news that also exist. We don't say about every type of news that we receive that it's good news, right? 
There is some news that we receive that eh, doesn't bother us one way or the other, so it's just news. But then there's also the bad news. Three types of news. The bad news, the good news, and then the news that doesn't really affect us. We don't have a feeling one way or the other about it. The fact of the matter is that gospel, the gospel implication, the biblical idea of the gospel is that there is bad news that exists. Matter of fact, I'm going to take it a step further. It's not just bad news. It's horrible news. It's horrible news. And I just want to step you for just a few moments, and, and a lot of these scriptures for most of us are probably going to be very familiar, but I, I, I want us to remind ourselves of what the Bible says about why we need the gospel. Remember that in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul is writing that great theological masterpiece on salvation and what it means to have the gospel. And he tells us that there is none righteous. Not one person. Matter of fact, he takes it a step further and says, there's not even one person born into the world that ever seeks God. We'll talk about this more in just a moment, but can I remind you this morning that you would not, in your own sinful state, ever seek God. You only sought God because God came after you first and brought you under the convicting power of the gospel. We're all unrighteous. There, there's not one of us who understands God. There's not one of us who seeks for God. And Paul goes further and says, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's the picture of an archer shooting an arrow. And he's shooting at a target. And he doesn't just miss the target. He drastically misses the target. It's like he pulls the arrow back and it just sticks right there in front of him. We've drastically fallen short of the glory of God. Paul continues in the book of Romans in chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. Now I don't know about you, but when I go to work and I receive my wages, I don't think about wages being something negative, but in this case, the wages of sin, the payment for sin, is death. But... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. And He's our Lord. When you sum all that up, and that was just a sampling of Scripture, but when you sum it all up, here is the bad news. We are hopeless and helpless before holy God. You are helpless and hopeless before holy God. And because of that, that then leads us to understand why the gospel is such good news. Because if we are hopeless and helpless before a holy God, then there must be something about the good news, the gospel, that brings something to us that we could not get on our own. Notice here, if you would please, the question, what is the gospel? If the bad news, if the horrible news is that we're helpless and hopeless before a holy God, then what is the good news? 
The bad news is that we're helpless and hopeless before a holy God. And here's the question, what is the gospel? And here's the answer. The gospel is the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's put that into context here for just a moment. I want to, I want to think about that definition. And I want to start at the end. We've already talked about the gospel meaning good news, but I want to go to the end of that definition and think about the name and the title, Jesus Christ. The name Jesus means Jehovah saves. The, the name Jehovah is the name of God the Father. And it, the name Jesus is the earthly name of the Savior that means Jehovah saves. So in this name is implied the fact that the bad news is you are helpless and hopeless. You can't do anything for yourself. But there is Jesus, Jehovah, or God saves. So the point is that you can do nothing to help yourself to earn the favor of God. That's why it's not just bad news, it's horrible news. But then, let's look at some scripture that tells us that about Jesus. Again, John, in the Gospel of John, he introduces us to us, to us this idea of the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He equates the Word of God with God, but he also makes him an individual he was with God, but He was also God. Fundamentally, we believe in the Trinity, that Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Father, Jehovah, are two distinct individuals, but yet they're still equal. They both have deity. They are deity. And when you get to verse 14, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. Now, he doesn't introduce Jesus by name here, but the implication in the light of all the gospel is that Jesus is the one who came in the flesh. And as a result of that, notice what John says, we have seen his glory. Now, think about what Paul said to the Romans. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We can't earn his favor. We can't live in a way that would glorify him and display his glory apart from Jesus Christ. And when Jesus came into the world, John says, we beheld his glory. And so Jesus, when we look at him, is the manifested glory of God and the earth. And he is to help us understand what the glory of God is all about. But then there's this title, Christ. So if Jesus means Jehovah saves, what does Christ mean? It means the anointed. He's the anointed one. God in eternity past, knowing that sin would come into the world, chose His own Son, Jesus Christ, anointed His own Son, Jesus Christ, to come into the world, as John said, so that we could behold His glory. So that He could come and bring the good news, the gospel to us. Christ is the one who is anointed to do that. So what does that mean to you and me? That means this, that you are not the anointed one and you cannot save yourself. Period. And how often in our lives, in the circumstances of life, in the issues of life, 
do we act as if we're the anointed one? Christ and Christ alone is the anointed one. So Jesus, Jehovah saves, God the Father saves, He chose Christ, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, so God saves by the anointed one, Jesus Christ. Let's look at some scripture to help us with this. Peter, you'll recall, was writing to a generation of followers of Christ that were uh, enduring some hardships. They were being persecuted for their faith. And notice what he says here, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Now watch this, and it's emphasized on the screen for you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's will for you is not that you would continue in your sin, falling short of His glory, and finding yourself condemned on judgment day in eternal hell. That's not God's will for you. God's will for you is that you come to repentance. That you would not stand in judgment condemned, but you would stand in judgment justified. John reminds us again, as we've already looked at today in our catechism, that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Why? Because He's the God who saves and He chose Jesus to be the anointed one to do that. And as a result of that, those who believe in Him should have eternal life. As I always remind you, don't ever interpret John 3.16 without John 3.17 because in John 3.17, it's just as important as John 3.16. Christ did not come into the world to condemn you. He didn't come to condemn us. He came that we might be saved through Him. Paul goes on to say to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And I know I just quoted King James and ESVs on the screen, but that's okay. It means the same. So here is God, who has brought good news to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus means God saves. Christ means the Anointed One. You cannot save yourself. So let's look at the idea of the person of Jesus Christ. Why is the person of Jesus Christ so important? I've already covered much of this in what we looked at in the Gospel of John, but here it is. He's the only one who can bridge the gap between holy God and unholy man. If you can't save yourself, somebody has to save you. How, who saves you? God saves you in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ in His personhood as the God-man that came and gave Himself for us. That's what John talks about. Paul also says it in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. Why? Because the personhood of Christ matters. We had to have a God-man to bridge that gap 
for us. But not only did our definition say that it was the good news of the person of Jesus Christ, but our definition also said it's the good news of the work of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, I've already told you, but let's just lay it out here. It means that He came to provide salvation for us. Salvation being the forgiveness of sin. Salvation being... um, a reconciled relationship with God the Father, salvation being a call to a life that is different than the life that you've lived to this point in your life. It's radically changed. It's radically different. Christ came in His personhood as the God-man to do this work, to bridge the gap for you and me and to provide salvation. And so what that means is that Jesus died in our place to free us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day He will free us from the presence of sin. Notice what Paul said again to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. Remember, he's already said that in the fullness of time he came born of woman under the law. Why? Verse 5 tells us to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now pay attention to that last phrase, adoption as sons. Remember what the Gospel tells us? Those who have believed in Christ have received power to become the sons of God. We are no longer in the same sinful state that we were in before we came to Christ. There has been a change that has happened in us, and one of the most significant changes is not just the forgiveness of our sin, but it's the fact that God, through His Son Jesus Christ, has adopted us as children into His family. Second Corinthians 5.21 The doctrine of the great exchange. Christ took upon Himself on the cross our sin so that we could be made the righteousness of God in Him. He took our sin and in exchange for that His righteousness, His holiness is placed upon us. Again, when we come to Christ, it's not just to get out of hell because salvation is more than that. It gives us a new life. It gives us a new start. We've been made holy. We've been set apart. We are righteous because of Christ. And so the Gospel is the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. But what does that mean? It means holy God has provided us the help and the hope we need in Jesus Christ. God has acted on our behalf. But I want us for the next few moments to just think about salvation I've already referred to this multiple times, but let me just put it into a picture for you, into a grid. I want us to understand this morning that salvation, the gospel, has three phases, three parts. The first part is that of justification. 
And that deals with our past. In dealing with our past, we have been free from the penalty of sin. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you repented of your sin and you confess Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, God, as the ultimate judge, looks at you and says, you're not guilty. That's your past. You've been freed from the penalty of sin because of the Gospel. And let me just say, in case you haven't caught on yet, the Gospel is Jesus Christ. The second phase or the second aspect of the Gospel is that second aspect that we would call sanctification. That deals with the here and now. That deals with our present. And it is to free us from the power of sin. Listen, if everything I just gave you in all these Scriptures, if all of that is true, here is what's true of you and me as followers of Christ. We do not have to act as if we're still sinners. We live as if we're a child of God. And yet, in the issues of life, in the circumstances we face, how often... Do we make decisions and live in a way that is carnal and not Christian? And then ultimately, the day that we're looking forward to, that day that motivates us, that day that says keep pressing forward, is that day when we step into eternity for all of eternity and we are glorified. And at that moment, God in some future moment of our lives, God will free us from the presence of sin. Now here's the problem. Most of us understand the past. Most of us look forward to the future. But all of us struggle with the present. And can I remind you that if the gospel is not just a get-out-of-hell-for-free card, then there is something about the gospel that affects our lives in the present, today. So let's go to our text for this morning, 1 Corinthians 6. Give me about five minutes and we'll be done. Famous last words. Let me just set the context for you. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was a carnal church. There are many things that they did in the decisions they made, in the ways that they acted that were not Christian. They were carnal. So it's important to keep that context in mind as Paul is writing to the Corinthians. And in this particular section, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6, he's actually talking to the church about lawsuits against other believers and that we should not be suing one another in the church. But what he says in verses 9 to 11 I think are all so important. So let's begin in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor even men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now watch verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In this brief three verses, Paul, in the midst of his discussion on lawsuits with believers, brings in the gospel. And in these three verses, he expounds the gospel in such a way that he reminds us that there is a whole different life for you and me to live. Notice, if you would, first of all, in the first part of verse 9, the kingdom of God is a righteous kingdom. And so he says in verse 9, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's the point Paul's making here? The point is, you carnal Christian in Corinth should be living very differently because you've been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's something different about you in who you are, and you should be living differently. And so he reminds them bluntly that the kingdom of God is not filled with unrighteous people. It is a righteous kingdom. And the implication, therefore, is that unrighteous people are not welcome in the kingdom. And unrighteous people will not live in the kingdom. Then when you look at verses 9 to 11, the second half of verse 9 through verse 11, you have a new identity. You have a new identity. Now, notice what he says at the end of verse 9, end of verse 10. Notice... Notice the list here. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He gives us this list, and by the way, it's a representative list. This is not a complete list. This is a list that was directed at the Corinthians so that they could understand what Paul was saying because in their carnality they had many of these things about them that characterized them. And so he's writing to the Corinthians, but can I suggest to you he might as well have wrote that to the church today. Because many of these things still exist in the church today. But here's what I want you to see about this. In this representative list that he gives us, oftentimes these sins that he lists become identity issues. I'm a drunk, I'm a homosexual, I'm an adulterer. They become Identity issues. And here's the point that I think Paul is making in these verses. 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've repented of your sin, you cannot legitimately say anymore, I'm a drunk. Because you're a child of God. Something has changed about you. Something is different about you. You've been forgiven of your past. You've been forgiven of what it is that you've done in your sin. And that is no longer true of you. And I'll show you why. Because in the next verses, in these verses, there are some words used here that help us. Notice the word washed. You have been washed. Now when you think of the word wash, it's... There's no special Greek meaning here for the word wash. It's what we would think about in terms of washing. You wash something away. You clean it up. You get rid of the dirt. When you put your dishes into the dishwasher of an evening, you do so because you're going to wash them. And when they come out of the dishwasher in the morning, they will come out looking very different than when they went in the night before, right? Paul says, you've been washed. In other words, your sin has been put out of the sight of God. Remember what the Bible says? He has cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. He has put your sin out of his sight. You've been washed You are clean. You're not the same person now that you've come to Christ as you were the moment before you confessed Christ. You've been washed. And so it is illegitimate for you to continue to say, well, I'm a follower of Christ, but I'm an alcoholic. No, if you're a follower of Christ, you've been washed. Now, does that mean that you won't struggle with things like alcoholism and others? Yes, you may very well struggle with that. I'm not saying that you're going to be completely free of it in that moment. That's the whole purpose of sanctification. That every moment, every day, God continues to work on us to clean us up even more in the way we live. See, positionally, we're already clean. Positionally, when God looks at us, He our sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west, and he does not see our sin positionally, but in our practical everyday living, there are issues of life and circumstances of life that still need to be put under his control. And that's a real struggle for some of us. Notice the second word here, sanctified. I've already talked about sanctification, but let me just expand upon that for just a moment to make sure we're all on the same page. At that moment in life when you confess Christ as Lord of your life and you repent of your sin and you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ, it's in that moment that God washes you of your sin. He declares you not guilty. And in declaring you not guilty, He has just taken you from the position of being a sinner to being a saint. He sanctified you in that moment. Because you're no longer a sinner, you're now a saint. But, we're still in these sinful bodies. They still struggle with the circumstances around us. They still struggle with the issues of life. They still struggle. Even Paul himself, remember what Paul said? I know what I want to do, but I don't do it. I know what I don't want to do, but I still do it. 
Even the great Apostle Paul still struggled in his own sanctification with the issues of life. And you and I will continue to struggle in the, in the issues of life. But to be sanctified, here's what you need to know. You are consecrated to God. When He forgave you, He set you apart. And He set you apart with a purpose. And that purpose was to consecrate you to Himself so that you would be dedicated to Him, you would serve Him, you become a child of His, you're adopted into the family of God, you are no longer who you once were. Matter of fact, Paul said to the Corinthians, old things are passed away. All things become new. We're not the same person we were because we're a new creation in Christ. And then notice another word that he used here, and that's the word justified. I'm not going to spend much time here because I've already spent time on it with the chart that I gave you, but it simply means that you are declared righteous. You are declared righteous. God is the great judge, looked at what Christ did for you, looked at you when you put your faith in Him and repented of your sin, and He declared you not guilty. And in declaring you not guilty, He declares you righteous. Now that's good news in light of what Paul just said to the Corinthians. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Who does? the righteous. And God has declared us righteous because of our faith in Jesus Christ and the repentance of our sin and turning toward Him. So here's the point of the whole message. You are no longer a slave to sin. Period. So quit acting like it. Quit thinking like you're a sinner and quit acting like you're a sinner because you're no longer a slave to sin. Thank you once again for downloading today's podcast of the Sunday Sermon. And once again, if you would just be so kind to rate and comment on this podcast, that will help us to become more discoverable in the podcast universe. And until next week, May God bless you. May you have a great week.